Yesterday was a, a major anniversary uh, that much of the world seemed to move by as though it weren't that big of a deal. And for the life of me, I cannot figure out why. There were a few mentions of it. A couple of historical documentaries could be found if you wanted to find them, if you went and looked for them. But nothing, in my opinion, that was befitting of the occasion. I understand it. After all, to say that we've put a man on the moon sounds as routine as saying we're going to McDonald's after church to get a Happy Meal. It sounds simple. It sounds ordinary. It sounds like something we've heard and we say we put a man on the moon and we just kind of move on. It sounds so simple. It is not at all. And it definitely wasn't 50 years ago when most of the calculations that were done had to be done by hand by hundreds and hundreds of scientists and mathematicians. It's one thing to have to pass a math test. That is enough of a stress for most of us. It's entirely different to have thousands of people to have to pass the test perfectly. And if any one, question, if any one person misses the question on the exam, at least three people are going to die. And it's also the most complicated math, really, that you can just about conceive of, at least at that time. It was remarkable to even consider that someone would walk out on their front porch, look up at the moon, and say, we're going to go there. It's the height of arrogance. It's the height of, of audacity to go out and see the moon and to think we could go and stand on that thing. It takes all kinds of guts just to utter that out loud, let alone to actually attempt it, let alone to do it. Earlier this summer, I listened to a book called Rocket Men. Uh, this is a fantastic book. It's not about Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong and those guys that walked on the moon. It's about Apollo 8, which was the first mission that left the Earth's orbit and went to the moon. They went to the moon, they did some orbits around the moon, and then they came back. This all on Christmas Day. It's a fantastic book that had me at moments uncontrollably weeping. Completely caught me off guard. Like, made me feel dumb because I was just weeping, thinking about some of this stuff. And the more I kept listening to this book, the more the thought kept going through my mind, we're talking about the moon. The, the moon. We're not talking about Mount Lacant here. We're talking about the moon. For me, the more I say that, the more ridiculous it sounds the more audacious it sounds, the more it's like that is a ridiculous thought. The dedication that was required of these astronauts was remarkable. They were absolutely laser-focused on their task. They sacrificed everything to make this journey happen. Everything. These Apollo astronauts gave up everything to make it happen. Their health, their safety, their privacy, their diets, their marriages, their children, it was all on the table to be sacrificed if and when the moment came. And for every one of them, the moment came for all of those things. Of all the Apollo missions that happened, Apollo 8, the first one, was the only mission in which every astronaut that was on that mission didn't at one point get divorced. 
It took a toll on the families of these astronauts because so much had to be given over to this task. And all three of those men would tell you that they didn't stay married because they did anything great. It's because their wives endured incredible, incredible hardships in order to allow this to happen. And all three of these men, once the Apollo program was over, spent the rest of their life trying to fix what they had damaged so much in their careers. Everything was sacrificed. Some of it willingly, some of it reluctantly. But the sacrifice came either way. To be an Apollo astronaut demanded everything of these men. Everything. There was nothing that could not be asked of them and nothing they would not have to give over. They were fully committed. They were willing to give their all. There was nothing that would stop them from the pursuit of the goal that was in front of them. There was nothing that could stop them from being able to call themselves Apollo astronauts. They were, to use more church language, disciples of the Apollo program. And they were good ones. They were really good. If you were to lay out the characteristics of an astronaut, I think we could all come up with a composite sketch of what an astronaut looks like. They have to be next-level smart. They have to be incredibly fit. They have to be highly adaptable. They have to not be able to throw up when being thrown into a thousand different circles and not know where they're going. They have to embrace risk. They have to dismiss fear. These are the personality types of an astronaut, a disciple of the American space program. For us here at the church, we too are called to be certain things as disciples of Jesus. Things that don't always make a lot of sense. There's two primary passages that we can go to that give us the list that we so often crave of characteristics of what we are supposed to be. One is found in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. The second is found in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. The Beatitudes in Matthew 5 tell us that we are blessed if we are persecuted, if we are mourning, if we are meek. We are blessed if we hunger for righteousness, if we are peacemakers, if we are merciful. They give us a list of this is what it looks like to follow after Jesus in his kingdom and the economy of his kingdom. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, or in Galatians, the truth of the Spirit uh, is, or the fruit of the Spirit is identified as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self control. We can rattle off these lists like it's nothing. We know these things. They are lists that we can measure off to kind of determine our discipleship level, if you would like. Where do we measure up on these certain things in Matthew 5 and in Galatians? Where do we measure up on this checklist? What are the things that we do? If we can do these things, then perhaps we can call ourselves a disciple. Now, there's a lot of things that you can ask whenever you see a checklist like this. The first is what happens when you don't look like those lists at all. Can you still call yourself a disciple? And the second question that comes under our series this morning, one we will focus a little bit more on, is what does it mean, what does it look like to be a disciple? And today's question specifically, what does it look like when all of these lists play out in your life at home and in your family? Now, when I say at home and in your family, what I have in mind primarily is the marriage relationship and the parent-child relationship. That's the two I primarily have in mind as I talk this morning. But these principles can be extended far beyond those two relationships. 
And so as it pertains to our series, you are here. How do you get to where God is leading you? The question is, what does it look like for these two lists to play out in your marriage and in your parenting, in your family? What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it look like at home? What does it look like in your interactions, kids, with your parents? What does it look like in your interactions, parents, with your kids? How can we live out these defining characteristics of a Christian in every aspect of our lives, but especially these primary relationships? It's a complex question. It's a difficult question. It's not one that I approach with any, uh, in any kind of uh, lightness because I'll be completely frank with you. I don't preach a whole lot of sermons where I say, do these things. You won't hear much of that from me, and you will kind of only halfway hear that this morning. I'm not going to preach a sermon that says, here's exactly what it looks like to be a merciful parent, a peacemaking wife, a husband that hungers for righteousness. I'm not going to say, if you do these things, and that's what that looks like. I'm not going to tell you, here's what it means to be a kid that's full of love and joy and peace. Not because I don't think that would be a worthy thing to talk about but because I think that's the most important thing that you could do with this sermon today. I just happen to think the best place to do that is going to be with others that can truly help you flesh those things out instead of me prescribing and saying, this is exactly what it looks like. Let the Spirit flesh it out and you talk it out with other believers around you in your discipleship groups, in your homes, in your families, with your kids, with your husband, with your wife. And I say that because here's the, 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 the way that this will play out. If I'm to lay it out and I'm to say, here, you do all these things, the first thing I know is you're probably going to forget it. As much as I hate to say that as a preacher, you're probably going to forget it. By the time we get a couple of weeks away, you're going to be like, what were those things I was supposed to do? I don't know. I'm just going to keep on keeping on. But the second reason is because you probably won't believe me if I laid those things out anyway. You would be quick to say, wait a minute, hang on, you don't know my wife. You don't know my husband. There's no peacemaking with this woman. So how am I supposed to be a peacemaker? There's no no humility here with my husband. How am I supposed to carry on this thing? Because these things aren't going to work together. If I show him mercy, the lazier he will get. I can't be a merciful wife, right? You're going to give me all these reasons why it doesn't apply to you. So this morning, I'm going to try to give you something, and just bear with me on the analogy a little bit, something kind of like the rocket gave the Apollo astronauts. It got them up off the earth. When this massive Titan rocket took off, it was one of the most powerful things the world had ever seen. It shook with a thunderous force that scared the astronauts that were aboard. They had no idea that this thing would be so powerful. It shook windows and knocked pictures off the wall hundreds of miles away. And it had to be because it sent these men against the force of gravity that held them so tightly to the ground. It moved them against this this force and it propelled them out of our atmosphere where gravity no longer held sway over them. They were, after all, Apollo disciples. And Apollo disciples were not to be bound by the forces of nature that once were thought to be unbreakable. The rocket helped them leave those bounds. The rocket was science to its max. 
It wasn't just pointed toward the moon. Somebody light a match underwards and see where the bottle rocket goes and hope it gets to the right place. It was nailed down to the precise point of where it needed to go, precisely how it needed to be shot. It was power that got it there and science and math that helped it. My hope this morning is to point you where you need to go. To have you pointed in exactly the right place, the right direction. To give you a power that will make the ground shake. And get you to to break the bonds this world so desperately wants to put on you. And then, then we can start to talk about the details of what it looks like in your life. We're going to be a bit all over the place this morning. I'm going to have several different texts that we're going, to look, we're going to look at. But I want to begin with what might be Jesus' clearest teaching and description of a disciple. And in so doing, I think maybe surprise you with how the family fits into this picture. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verse 27 is where we're going to be. Jesus is teaching about being a disciple. If you've been around a church Hardly any time at all you would have heard this, you would know this verse. Verse 27, it says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Pretty good verse for us to talk about, assuming we are doing a series about being a disciple, right? If you cannot bear my cross, or bear his his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, he has laid a foundation, he's not able to finish, and all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great... Great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So we read this and we think, wow, that must be hard to be a disciple. That sounds pretty intense. Jesus wasn't playing around. But if you're around church, you know these verses. You know this exhortation. If you don't take up your cross and follow him, you cannot be his disciple. It's not even controversial for us to say that right now in this place. It's accepted. Difficult, yes, but not controversial. Totally accepted. And if you're tracking with the sermon, the question you might be asking right now is, what in the world does this have to do with the family? I thought this was about being a disciple in the family. Why do we just got to have such a general exhortation here? I thought we were talking about the home. Well, I started in verse 27 because we know that verse, we recognize that verse, and we don't hardly even bat an eye at that verse. But did you know that that verse is actually set in the context of Jesus talking about the family? Look at verse 26, just before that. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is a little more problematic for us. We do bat an eye at this one. We do kind of back off a little and say, hang on, whoa, 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 whoa. I I get take up the cross, that's fine. Generally, I got an idea what that means. That's fine, I get it. The cross is a bad thing. Life's going to stink, it's going to hurt. Fine, I get it. I I get that. We don't bat an eye at that one. But, But this one, verse 26, 
we can't excuse that one away as just kind of a, a general exhortation to a hard life. It's very specific. He begins in verse 26 by talking about the family, and then he ends the paragraph by saying, if you don't renounce everything that you have, then you cannot be my disciple. He makes this clear because he knows what this message would bring. It would bring disharmony, and it would bring division among his followers. You see, the demand for a disciple to forsake their families was necessary because that demand would never have occurred to most of his listeners. It wouldn't have made any sense to them to consider forsaking their families to follow a religion because those things were all bound up together. You followed your father and what he believed in his family's faith, that's what your family did. It was an, an, almost an inherited uh, faith that you would have received. That was part of what it meant to be family, was the religion came with it. You know, the, 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 the big nose, the, the really tall, the... The, the overweight, the receding hairline, like family tradition, family, family traits. Religion was handed down just like that. So, so for Jesus to say, family doesn't really, is not something that's going to figure into this equation. You're going to, in fact, you're going to have to deny your family. They would have been like, I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's part of faith is Family. It would never have needed to be said to forsake your family for your religion because in many ways your family was your religion. At least their religion became yours. And Jesus knew that the discipleship he demanded was much more personal and much more costly. You couldn't just assume family was along for the ride. In fact, family had to become essentially a non-factor when it came to following Jesus. All that mattered was Jesus. You can almost hear his instruction to Peter that we looked at a couple of weeks ago where, where Peter's got some objections and Jesus says, what does it matter to you, Peter? You follow me. Jesus is in effect telling his listeners here, what does it matter what your family believes? You follow me. If you read the Gospels carefully, what you'll find is that Jesus talks like this a lot. I could give half a dozen examples here. I'll give you two very quickly. Luke chapter 11, go back a couple of chapters. Luke chapter 11. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Blessed is your mother. I've never had anybody scream that at me while I was preaching, but if I did, I would probably say, Yes, absolutely. She's a wonderful woman. That is not what Jesus says. Jesus says, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Almost dismissing Mary. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds, have, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Basically saying, are you sure about that? This is not a glamorous life. To another he said, follow me. So just like he said to his disciples, come follow me, and they followed him. Some didn't. He said, follow me. But that person that he said that to said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home, to my family. He's willing to give up the stuff. But just first let me go say goodbye. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What in the world is going on here? 
what is Jesus doing? He comes across like a jerk. He comes across like a guy who has no feeling or care for his family. What is he doing? Why does he do this? His teaching flies in the face of what we teach here at our church about the importance of family, about the priority of family, about how we want to be a place that is welcoming to family so that we can aid in helping and, and, and being a part of, of seeing that the, the kids come to know Christ and know who he is. So are we off here? Should we not be doing what we're doing as we care for kids and Providence Kids? For that matter, if you go throughout the Old Testament, this seems to fly in the face of the Old Testament. Time and time again, we're told about the importance of family, caring for family, and how the the sins of the fathers are revisited generation after generation, how the family plays such a crucial role. Why does Jesus do this? Jesus says these things And he goes right for the family, not because he believes family isn't very important. It's just the opposite. He goes and he says these things because he knows how important family truly is. He knows that the family, like it or not, agree with it or not, celebrate it or not, he knows that the family is the source of much of our identity. As children, our families form us. For better or worse, they form us. As parents, our families become our primary place of care and nurture and protection for our family and our children. All good things. But the the nature of the way the family works is that very quickly family can become everything. Our parents' faults become our excuses. Our children's failures become our embarrassments. Our children's successes become our pride. Our spouse's missteps become our fuel for anger. Our spouse's lack of affection and attention becomes our crushing emptiness. Family, like no other institution, has the ability to completely leave us exposed. It shapes us. It tempts us. It is there with no shortage of idols to throw our way. In telling us to renounce our families, to hate our families, as it were, Jesus is driving home the point. In overstatement, yes, perhaps, but he's making the point that nothing, even family, nothing can be more important than him. Nothing can even come close. It can't rival him at any point. The kids can't call the shots. The spouse can't be everything to you. The husband can't rule the house for his own agenda. The wife can't set the course for the marriage based on her own goals. It is Jesus that sets the course. It is Jesus that is the head of the family. There may be no message more antithetical to a huge segment of our culture. Depending on where you go, you will hear one of two things about the family. One, that kids really aren't all that important. Just have fun. Enjoy life. Have kids later if you want to. But you do things that are important and change the world until you're 35, and then you think about having kids. But in another segment of the world, what you will find is that children are everything. 
The children's schedule sets the schedule for the family. The children's desires sets the, 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 the priorities for the family. The children's sports set everything that the family does, and everything revolves around that. Everything is built for the, the success of the kids. Academically, athletically, any of those things are fine so long as the kids succeed. Jesus takes that and he says, that's not how this works. Husband, wife, kids, they don't set the agenda. Jesus does. Jesus sets it. In demanding our allegiance above our family, Jesus does the most wonderful thing he can do for family. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't say that it's worthless. He puts the family in exactly the place where it should be. He frees the family from the burden of being the king of everyone's life in this circle. And in removing its ability and its authority to have everything, he frees it to be in the place where it belongs. When kids' success in school or sports doesn't have to be our own source of victory or approval or our definition of success, then we free that kid to play the sport and pursue academics in a way that is far healthier. When spouses don't have to bear the burden of being another spouse's savior, they're then free to be partners and disciples together walking along the road. Our children and our spouses make for a great family, but they make for very poor saviors. Jesus knows this, and he tells us, don't let them become ultimate. He knows that they can be and that they will be if you do not guard against it. And he says, don't make them ultimate. Family can only be the blessing it's designed to be when it's placed in the place where it's designed to go. And that's the first principle for us this morning. Family isn't everything. Jesus is. Family isn't everything. Jesus is. Without this baseline principle, your rocket, to go back to the analogy, your rocket will never get off the ground. So long as you have put the family at the top of your pyramid, the rocket will be bound to earth. But if you get that one lined up, then perhaps you can begin to feel the earth shake just a little bit. The rocket start to begin its ascent just a little bit. Little bit. The rocket begin to break free just a little bit from that launching pad and the, the, the bond of gravity holding it down. Just to keep pushing the analogy a little bit further, the math for that Titan rocket, rocket to get to the moon had to be perfect. Perfect. No mistakes. It had to be spot on. Do you know, last night I was watching a documentary talking about Apollo 11, and they showed something that I thought was absolutely fascinating, stuff I've never seen before. Moments before launch, mission control reports very calmly. You can read it in the, uh, in, in the transcript. You can go ahead and put that, that transcript that, that's up there. You can read it. Mission control reports very calmly that they had a leaky valve that a technician was still working on with two hours to go until launch. A leaky valve on the rocket. That's crazy. And, and what it says, like if you, if you read it, 
If you read it, it says the work continues on a leaky valve at the 200-foot level. And then it goes and says the technician's still hard at work tightening bolts at that time. There is some guy in coveralls and a hard hat, and it says Mike right here on his thing, and he's got a ratchet going, tightening a bolt two hours before that rocket takes off. Like, in my mind, I can just see that working. I can see how that, that happens. Like, he's up there on an elevator, and he realizes, I got three-eighths inch. I need half an inch. He's radioing down to somebody saying, I got the wrong ratchet, guys. I'm coming back down. And then he just on that lift. Goes all the way down. Comes, like, he's sitting there on the rocket, tightening bolts. That's, that is crazy to me. Here's the thing. The math, the trajectory, the burn rates, the physics, it all had to be perfect, but there was still a leaky valve on the rocket. One thing you need to know about family is that it will never, never be perfect. As a parent, as a husband, I can sit here today and I could give you 10,000 things I've done wrong. I can tell you how I got the trajectory wrong. I can tell you how I got the math wrong. I can tell you how I got the tone of my voice wrong. Jesus demands of us that we follow him. He does not demand our perfection. For the sake of time, we're not going to turn there. But again, if you go back to where Peter had disowned Jesus, Jesus could have raked him over the coals and said, how dare you disown me at that moment when I needed you the most. But instead, Jesus affirms him, brings him back to being one of the disciples and says, go feed my sheep. He forgives and he restores. Have you ever noticed that the Beatitudes and the fruit of the Spirit, these lists that we love about being a disciple, have you ever noticed that baked into many of them is this idea that you need them because they don't exist elsewhere? You need to be merciful because someone will need to be shown mercy. You need to be a peacemaker because somewhere there will be strife. You'll need to be patient because somewhere something is going to want to make you anxious. You'll need goodness because somewhere goodness will be hard to find. We could go on and on and on. And if you play this out in the context context of marriage and parenting, you see how quickly this gets applied. You'll need to show gentleness because your immediate reaction, justified in your mind, will be anger, rage, lashing out, screaming, harshness. On and on these could play out. Jesus doesn't need to tell us to be joyful. If joy is always present and easily attainable, we wouldn't need the supernatural help of the Spirit if, we were, if joy were easy and readily available. So it is in our marriages and our families. Being a disciple is most apparent when perfection is least likely to be found. Or say it this way, you are seen to be a disciple best when being one is hardest. And there's no place harder than the crucible of our families. The reality is that sometimes we are the ones to offer mercy and sometimes we are the ones that humbly need to ask for it. 
Sometimes, Dad, you are in a place to demand something from your kids. In fact, as their authority, you are often in the place to demand something from your kids. But sometimes you are in a place where you do not demand, rather you seek kindness, gentleness, and mercy from your kids because you realize how badly you've done at some things. You can be on both sides of this one. The one showing mercy and the one desperately in need of it. The beautiful thing is that in light of the gospel, in light of the forgiveness we have received from Jesus, we too can receive the blessing of this from him. Listen to how he talks about this in the family context. Matthew chapter 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks ask him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If we as disciples are commanded to show mercy and forgiveness, how much more will our Father in heaven give good things to those of us who ask? The second thing The second principle to remember is that perfection isn't required. Jesus is. When we start to get this right, when we stop shaming ourselves, beating ourselves up for all of our mom fails and dad fails and husband fails and wife fails, for all of that guilt that we carry, for all the ways that we've messed up, when we stop demanding perfection from our spouses and from our children, when we start showing grace and mercy, then we begin to see the power of that rocket truly begin to show the engines fire, the earth shakes, the windows miles away begin to rattle and And there is a power that this earth cannot touch, cannot compare to, because it is a power that is fueled by the gospel, that is fueled by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Rocket fuel has nothing on the power that comes from that. It's fueled by the grace of Jesus. And if our fathers who are wicked know how to give those things to us, how much more will Jesus And finally, I know we're running way late on time, but I want to give one more principle that is essential on our journey. If we are to call ourselves followers of Jesus, then we have to make sure we make the important things the important things. Look, one more passage, Mark chapter 12. Jesus is in a and a with the Sadducees, and they are trying to trick him. They are trying to throw out a tricky scenario. They do it by proposing this nonsense hypothetical about a woman with no kids who's been married and widowed seven times. Whose wife will she be in heaven, they want to know, trying to trick Jesus. And here is his answer. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Emily's always hated these verses. She's always said that she didn't like these verses, and I get it. They sting. They can be hard to understand. After all, if you love your spouse, and you re- then, then there's nothing more you can want to imagine than being side by side, holding hands in heaven, praising Jesus, just like we do here in church, be able to stand side by side with your spouse and just offer up praise. 
But Jesus wants to make it clear that those family, family relationships work very different in heaven. Because in many ways, the family relationships were built for earth, not built for eternity. Our souls were built for eternity. Our marriages were not. Why? Because marriage is designed, at least in part, to point us to Jesus and to teach us about the gospel. When we get to heaven, we won't see through a a, a glass dimly any longer. We will know in full and we will know Christ in full. We will know him totally. I think what really sets our families in the right trajectory, going on the right path, is that we are careful about the place that those relationships hold. It can be easy to think of our current relationships as ultimate, as central, as primary, as our guiding purpose in life. After all, what can be a more admirable goal than to be a good dad and a good husband? To be a good mom and a good wife? But if that is as far as your goal goes, then you'll never leave that gravitational pull of earth that's holding you down. Perhaps you'll have some power. Perhaps you'll maybe even get off the ground for a bit, but you'll always be held down by the earthly relationships that are built for earth. You'll always be bound to earth by those relationships. What we've got to understand is that, to quote Francis Chan, frankly, marriage isn't all that great. And neither is parenting. Not that they're not wonderful things, because they are. They just pale in comparison to the greatness of God. And the relationships here on earth need to be built, not for momentary happiness, but for eternal accountability. Husband, one day your wife will stand before God, and when that day comes, you're going to need to know that you've done everything to help prepare her for that day. Same goes for you, wife. Parents, one day your children will stand before God and you're going to want to know that you did everything to prepare them for that day, that you've told them about that day. Now, does that mean you won't have wayward children? Does that mean that you won't have spouses who don't listen and who do their own thing? Absolutely not. But you need to know that your task is to help prepare in the best way you can and to use that relationship to point to eternity, not to limit yourself to earth. The future of your family and the success of your family in your own eyes should look less like the world's definition of successful kids. Our definition of success is great kids, wonderful grandkids, and being old on a front porch swing holding hands together. That's just not the same goal that comes with being a disciple of Jesus. Sure, those things are wonderful if they come along. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, it looks different. So we parent firmly with the cross in view. And that if we do not take up our cross, we cannot be his disciple. And if we do not look to the cross as we parent and as we look to our our spouses, we cannot be his disciple. You always put the cross before them. Whether your marriage is great, whether you're firing on all cylinders, or whether you can't figure out what to talk about, and really you just don't even like each other anymore, the cross is still what's in view, and it still shapes your marriage. 
And this is the final point. Family, at least as we know it, isn't forever. Jesus is. Family isn't forever. Jesus is. So what does a disciple look like at home? He looks like someone that has taken up their cross and is following Jesus wherever he leads. She looks like someone that isn't caught up in the things the world deems important or a Pinterest perfect family picture. She looks like someone that has seen those kids, seen that spouse, seen the rest of that family through the splinters of a cross, and has then taught them to do the same. This is where discipleship begins. And with all of those things in place, perhaps then you can truly see that rocket begin to soar. You can truly break free from the things of this world that hold you down that we saw in 1 Peter last week. And we can put family in its place. And we can live with the end in sight. And we can pursue Christ and be his disciple with our families, not at the center, but by our sides. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for thank you for the way that you love us, that you care for us. Thank you for the way that you allow us to follow you, to know you, to be your disciple. Father, thank you that perfection is not required to be your disciple because you, your son, was perfect. And that we are seen in him, hidden in Christ, so that our failures are on him. And his perfection is on us. Father, we need that so desperately in so many areas of our lives, but it it feels so acute, so present, so real when we think about being parents and being spouses. Our failures are so readily apparent and on view. Father, help us to live this life with those relationships in the right place. And help us to live with the end in sight. And your glory is our goal. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.